Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Anna Rose Bain, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So we go way back. I think I met you at the Porch Society of America like 10 years ago or something. Oh, it's yeah, it's been at least 10 years. You think? Yeah. Probably 12. Yeah, yeah probably. So how long have you been doing the Porch Society thing or attending it? Um, my first one was in 2009. So um, I've attended 12 of the last 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, yeah, the only time I missed was when I was uh, about to pop with my daughter. <laughs> I was pregnant with my daughter. Oh, really? <laughs> That's the only one you've missed? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we must have met at one of the earlier ones. I think I've been doing it about 10 years now. So it must have been okay. pretty early on. So, yeah, you were always a star. So, um, you well, know, I doubt it's that. been an honor to get to know you over the years. Same to you. The first question I want to ask you is, how did you get started as a full-time painter? As a full-time painter? Um, well, I realize you're splitting your time between mom and painter. Yeah, I was lucky enough to have um, five or six really good years after graduating college to focus on just painting. And uh, my husband and I, we got married in 2008. I graduated from Hillsdale College in 2007. So it was pretty much right after college that I started um, working as a painter. And I had about a year in between there where I was working for a um, photography studio, which mm -hmm. was a great job, I loved it. But I think that year I only did maybe three or four paintings altogether. Oh, ouch. So it was after we got married, we moved to Texas for his job as an engineer. Um, he was like, look, you know, if this is what you want, you should just set up your easel and paint all day, every day. And that's what I did. And it was, it was kind of scary. You know, <laughs> it was like I had this big empty studio space and a tiny little French easel in the corner. And I really didn't know who I was as an artist yet or what I wanted to say. But I really put myself out there. I was doing um, art festivals, which, you know, when I look back, I'm like, that was probably not the best idea for the kind of art I wanted to do, but it was something. Um, and I would occasionally get a commission out of that. Or um, if I was lucky, I broke even. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually I made my way into a gallery in Texas and they did pretty well selling my work. Um, and I was doing portrait commissions, you know, anything I could, anything I could basically find to just be painting all the time. And some of those commissions were really tough. Um, I, I remember um, shedding more than a few tears over some of those because they were just, they seemed like problems I just couldn't solve hmm. at the time, given my skill level. And, and yet um, the clients were always happy with them. I never had someone say, Hey, you got to do this over again. This isn't good enough. Um, everybody was happy. And that really just gave me, the affirmation I needed to keep going as a painter. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was really how I got started. Um, and I also found a 
life portrait and figure group um, in Texas where I was living at the time with Michael Mettler, who's another Portrait Society regular, and just started painting portraits from life every single week. And he would bring in artists to teach workshops there. And I got to attend those for free because I would help line up the models and just kind of do, you know, bring them coffee, buy them lunch, all this stuff. I was kind of the, the runner for that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't care. I was just soaking up everything I possibly could to um, hone my craft. And that's that's really what it takes. You know, you can you can call yourself a professional full-time artist, but still be learning constantly. And that's the way I like to look at it. Um, it's half execution and half just education all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that you would put it that way because it's almost, you know, most careers you graduate from college and you are that thing. In fact, it was interesting because mm-hmm. someone was saying that they're a poet the other day. Uh, the, the, I heard a presentation by somebody who was a quote unquote poet. I've never, I've never seen this, this or read this person's poetry, so I don't know. But they define themselves as a poet because they had graduated from a college and had studied poetry. And I remember Mm -hmm. hearing that and thinking, so that's how you define being a poet because you had finished a four-year degree. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It just was so foreign to me because I've been working as an artist for 20 years and I still don't know if I'm an artist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you certainly are. (laughs) Well, thank you. But you know what I mean? It's like, we're always students, right? And it's like, you you start to sell paintings but it there's no it feels like there's no just cutoff where it's like oh today i'm the artist right right i think you have days where you feel more confident than other days yeah for sure you know we all have really good days and really bad days but that doesn't define whether or not we're actually artists we're always artists and i think part of being an artist is just being in the struggle yeah and that's you know, to me, that's what makes it because if you're not overcoming those obstacles and solving those problems, then what's the point? That's valid. You know, it's. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So one thing you said that I think would be worth talking a little about for the viewers. um, You said you thought it might have been not the best idea to do the art fairs. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Why do you feel that way? Um. I think because I was trying to paint things that were more um, gallery type pieces or paintings that had a higher price point than what people Mm. typically would want to pay when they're going into an art fair or festival. Um, Typically, these kinds of places have a lot of crafts, a lot of, you know, woodworking, ceramics, jewelry, handcrafted items, and uh, maybe photography would be kind of some of the higher end stuff that you'll see, but not very often figurative realism. Right. <laughs> and so it ended up being a good um, connection for me to get portrait commissions, but very few of these events, um, I hardly sold anything. You know, once in a while I'd sell one painting and that, and that was enough to pay for my entry fee and all of that, you know, time that weekend, but um, it could be really discouraging. I'm not saying it's it doesn't work, you know, because it can work for some people. And I met artists who had been doing it for many, many years and were really successful at it, but I just discovered it wasn't for me. I would, and the other thing is it's really hard on your paintings um, to be 
outdoors for three days in a tent. If, if it rains and you're working with um, linen that's prepared with rabbit skin glue, your linen's yeah. going to warp. Yeah. Your paintings might warp while they're out there. So it's um, not very conservation friendly for fine art. <laughs> oh, that's something I never even thought about. Do you work with rabbit skin glue? Yeah. I do. I'm not always, but when I'm doing a really large painting that I want on a stretched, stretched, um, stretcher bars, say like a 30 by 48 or something, then I like to use rabbit skin glue because that's the tightest I can get it. Um, yeah. if I'm stretching a painting with pre-primed linen, I can never quite get it as tight as I would like. And I have the really expensive you know, tools for it, but, uh, there's nothing quite like that drum like bounce of, Rabbit skin glue. Oh, no, it's incredible. But can I tell you something? I guess I'm telling the whole world this. Um, so I own, I don't know, maybe 50 paintings um, from other artists. And uh, two of them have a rabbit skin glue foundation. And both of them happen to come from back east. So I live in Utah. I mean, you know that, but others Yeah, don't. yeah. Um, and uh, they're the only two paintings that have failed. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. And did the artists prepare them themselves? Yes, but the reason they failed is because they couldn't take the humidity change. They the the rabbit skin glue didn't like it. So it's anyway, it's just something that I've thought a lot about. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what this how this rabbit skin glue is if it's the way to go. But anyway, I'm not critiquing yeah, your work, but a, I was like, oh, out no, of fifty paintings, two of them were rabbit skin glue, they both failed. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of debate about it out there and I've tried everything. Um, and so, you know, I'm starting to work more with rigid surfaces ultimately yeah. just because they are more conservation friendly. But part of me still loves working on that stretch canvas because oh, you just yeah. can't quite get the same effect. You can't get the same brushwork. There's something completely different about it. So, yeah. um, you know, and I'll use, uh, you know, some of the acrylic polymers and that kind of stuff instead of rabbit skin glue as well. So I'm trying to like wean myself off of it, but at the end of the day, it's still my favorite. I know. Well, and it is <laughs> anecdotal. I mean, you can't, you can't, I have sort of concluded that I'm not going to use rabbit skin glue for that reason, but I realize it's hardly scientific. Just one person's experience. Right. Um, sure. And no matter what you do, I mean, you, it's you have to take good care of your artwork. Yeah, um, I think artists especially are really notorious for not taking care of our work in our right. studio or like maybe we'll transport a painting to the gallery and we just throw it in our car. Um, so my husband's called me out on that a few times before. He's like, you've got to treat this like it's already been sold to somebody. <laughs> yeah. And I will say they were both prepared by the same artist. So there might be something to that as well. They're both from the same artist. But yeah. Um, uh, yeah, anyway, it's, it's definitely a learning curve. I know, I know, but it's, um, yeah, that's the thing about painting is it's hard to know, you know, there's so many options now with all these different mediums and all these different surfaces and, you know, cause they come in and out of fashion and it's like, what, you know, it's hard to know what's going to last. Yeah. I did make, um, a YouTube series on oil painting surfaces. Oh, you and did? It was, yeah. Three different videos. Um, one of them is how to take really cheap canvases and sort of doctor them to be a much better working surface. Oh, interesting. And then um, another one is just kind of like all the different types that I've used over the years and what I like about them or don't like about them. And then the third one is actually me preparing 
Alien and Canvas from start to finish. So yeah. So I've what is what's the address this topic to those? A lot. What's the address <laughs> to those? Um, well, you can just look me up on YouTube. Okay. Um, I have my own channel. It's Anna Rose Bain, and um, I'm actually not sure what the address is for them, but no, they're I'm sure people um, can find very. Um, what is it called? Oil painting surfaces. I think you can Google it and, and okay. find them that way. So, so yeah. they can learn the right way to prepare a rabbit skin glued surface, canvas surface. The right way to do rabbit yeah. skin glue. Yeah. And I've, be, I've gotten a few comments on that post where, you know, people are like, well, you're doing this wrong or whatever, but, um, it's, it's pretty subjective. It's that's the problem that... I know. And no one really, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the problem. Well, anyway, the good news is, uh, not to get, I, mean, I know we're off way off on a tangent here, but both paintings were repaired by a conservator. So they're fine, but. Um, good. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, so the other question that I thought about it, you know, because what I had said earlier about you're also a mom, I want to talk a little about that. How in the world do you balance that being a mom and a painter? <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> I thought balance was everything for many, many years. I thought that was so crucial. And I'm realizing that it's kind of overrated. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I say that tongue in cheek, but it's like, if you really, really want to be excellent at what you do, you can't exactly have perfect balance in your life. If you look at the greats throughout history, Beethoven, Mozart, <laughs> some of the greatest painters like Da Vinci and Michelangelo, they had no balance in their lives whatsoever. Um, and I'm not saying that's good, but they had this kind of um, pathological obsession with being the best at what they did. And part of me is really, really drawn to that. There's, there's this side of me that's like, I have to just go for it. And, you know, that, <laughs> unfortunately at the expense of other things, but my children really keep me grounded. They keep me uh, with both feet on the ground and they help me remember what's important. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful for that because uh, they have taught me so much about myself and what it means to be human, what it means to be fully human and have that full experience as a woman, especially. But also, um, they help me just not be this obsessive compulsive uh, person all the time, which I think I would be if I didn't have them. So yeah, <laughs> but it, it's it's all a struggle. Every day is different. I don't really have a set schedule. Um, you know, my kids are gradually getting back into school, so that's helpful, but I had both of them home with me all summer this year. And so I kind of had to change my, my focus a little bit and be okay with the fact that I was not going to have those long hours in the studio, especially in the summer. And, uh, that was hard. That was hard for me, but I tried to spend as much time with my kids as I could because they're only little for a very, very short mm -hmm. period of time. And, and just um, be making lots of paintings in my head and planning those out because someday th those will end up on canvas. But um, in the meantime, they're just, I'm just stockpiling them mm -hmm. in my mind. And that's okay too. You know, you don't stop being an artist when you step away from the easel. You're always <clears throat> looking for those opportunities and for those compositions and for those moments of inspiration. And so um, I don't regret that time. So um, yeah. all that to say, yeah, I don't, I'm still trying to figure out the whole balance thing. It's, it's definitely tough. 
um, especially when my kids are younger. You know, they're four and eight now, so mm -hmm. still pretty young. So how does your husband feel about you accepting the fact that balance is overrated for an artist? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a source of conflict for us, but it's funny when we first met and realized, you know, he's an engineer, I'm an artist. We're absolutely as opposite as they come. And, uh, and yet he was like, I really want to support you in this. I can see that you're really passionate about this. You really love what you do. And I think he was, um, he really admired that about me and was willing to take on a career that would pay the bills so that I could pursue my passion. And he's been consistently good about that throughout the years. Um, so I, I really appreciate that about him. And, you know, for sure we have our, our conflicts because we are so different, but mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> he's good for me. He's the kind that will sit back and relax and, um, you know, watch the sunset. And I'm like, I gotta get my easel. I gotta paint that sunset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My wife and I were coming home from church yesterday and we walked by a coffee shop and all these people were lounging around. It was probably noon Sunday and uh, there had to have been, I don't know, 20, 30 people just sitting around on the grass, on the tables. And I said to my wife, what is that? I don't even, I can't even relate that to like? that. I can't even, <laughs> like, there's so much to do. How can you just sit on the grass? Like, I, it, like, I don't yeah. even understand that mentality. Like, I, I don't think, I can't remember the last time I just sat on the grass for a long period of time, obviously for short, you know, moments here and there, but for a long period of time and just chilled. Yeah. You know? Yeah. People here in Colorado do that a lot too. They'll just take a weekend and go tubing down the river or sit on the grass by the river and watch their dog play in the water. And I'm like, what's that like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's two. You know, and I, and I, you know, just for those listening, it's not that I can't make the time and I'm sure you probably could too. It's that, it's that we choose not to make the time. Right. It's like an illness. Right. Yeah. It, it is. We are, we're a little bit crazy and it's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, okay. So during the summer, did you get any painting time in at all? I did. Yeah, a little bit. Um, the My son is starting to drop his naps, but once in a while, if he took a nap, I would get to paint during that. Um, sometimes when my husband took the kids, I would paint. So I was just fitting it in wherever I could. Um, I got a couple paintings in this summer, so Good. I'm happy about that. And then I did travel quite a bit. And I do make a point to travel actually by myself because sometimes I have to physically leave the house in order to actually be able to refocus on painting. So I went to um, Malibu for a few days and that was wonderful. Did some plein air painting. By yourself? Um, painted with my friend Jeremy Lifking out there, which was lovely. Oh my gosh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, I love doing these trips by myself. And, and in fact, um, over the years, that's how I um, recharge is I will take a trip, especially to a national park or something like that. Um, I've gone to excuse me, I've gone to Joshua Tree, I've gone to Death Valley, Big Bend National Park, um, Arches and Canyonlands. All by yourself. Phenomenal. I would love to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What? I mean, I bring the bear spray, but. <laughs> I mean, no, not, not, not that I don't think you can handle being alone. It's just, I just, 
I don't know. It just, I'm a people person. I can't imagine yeah, doing that. I am, I am a trained people person, but deep down I'm actually very introverted. So I have to have that, that time alone okay. to, to recharge, to connect with God, to connect with nature, to um, kind of just recenter myself. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's a reason why in the Bible, Jesus goes off to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Like he had such a public ministry, but also needed that time um, to just be alone. And um, so I really relate to that. And I also relate to the, the symbolism of the desert and how um, we, we have these dry periods in our lives that we have to struggle through in order to get to the other side. And mm -hmm. so um, I've just found a lot of meaning in that and encouragement. Yeah. So I, I always come back with my tank um, full again. That's great. Well, you hear to hear first, folks. Jesus was an intro introvert, according to Angelo's tank. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> he needed 40 years away from anybody so he could go back and heal people. <laughs> 40 days. Or 40 days, 40 days. <laughs> of course, not 40 years, of course. Oh, man, that's funny. Well, I, I think you make a valid point, though. I mean, there is something really um spiritual for lack of a better word for just being out in the wilderness away from anything so yeah and there's something spiritual about painting you know we yeah. are we're creating we're we're mimicking that original act and i think that's really beautiful and a, and a very high calling that sometimes we don't even realize um just how great that is to to be able to do that um so i try not to take that for granted yeah so do you get, I mean, with your time, I know you're an excellent figurative painter, you're a landscape painter, you're a still life painter, you're, you've done it all. Um, how do you decide on a daily basis where to put your time? Because I struggle with that personally. I tend to gravitate toward the studio, but I'm always like, I want to go out and paint a landscape painting and then I end up back in the studio again. But you seem to be yeah. really good about diversifying your activities as a painter? Um, well, part of it is seasonal. So like in the early summer, June and July, that's when I'm painting flowers. I have all these flowers um, on my property mm -hmm. that just kind of all bloom at the same time. And I love floral paintings. I have a lot of collectors that love them. So that's always good. Um, peonies are my favorite and they have such a short growing season that I try to take advantage of that. Um, and then in the wintertime, I'll be in my studio doing figurative paintings based on maybe some photo shoots I did during the summer and fall. Um, and that's also when I'm doing a lot of portrait commissions. So I try to kind of space things out by the season and take advantage of every season for what it has to offer. Um, in the fall, I try to keep that open for a lot of hiking in the mountains, the Rocky Mountains in late September, early October are just stunning with the aspen trees. Um, and the weather's beautiful. Um, the other part of it is just whatever happens to be really at the forefront of my mind at the time. Maybe it's my kid having a milestone that I want to capture, or maybe it's a friend of mine and their, their baby that I want to paint. Or um, So I try to keep some of that open as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then I do a couple of pro bono paintings every year, so I try to fit those in as well. It's you do. Just, well, I want to hear more about that. Uh, yeah, I do. So you make um, it, you make it 
and you make an effort to do a couple of year. It's not like people just come to you, but you make a conscious effort to do a couple of year, a year. Well, people do come to me and I have to pick and choose. Okay. So I might have several different options out there and I just pick whatever um, moves me the most, I guess. Um, for example, last year, my piano teacher of, uh, my high school piano teacher had passed away and his wife asked me to do a painting of him for his memorial service. And I was like, absolutely. Yes. I want to honor him in that way. Um, uh, there, there's another one that I'm working on right now for a couple. Um, she has been struggling with cancer. And, um, so I'm, I'm doing that kind of in honor of them. Um, and then others I'll do for specific organizations, maybe the Scottsdale Artist School or some of the other um, organizations out there. So oh, it really, really just cool. depends on, yeah, I, I, I like doing that. I like being able to um, give a little bit. So. Wow. Now you've made me feel really guilty because I, <laughs> I rarely, <laughs> well, I rarely do that. Society too, you know, that yeah. everything that we do for them is for a great cause. So, yeah, um, but you do that. You paint in the face off and. Oh, well, I, yeah, I, I, I give my time, but I'm really bad about giving paintings. And I, I think the justification, which is a poor justification, I'm sure, is that I just feel like I don't get enough time to paint. So, um, yeah, it's I hard for me to too, give away sure. my painting time when it's so precious already. Yes, so, I completely understand. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> Yeah, but terrible justification. You're a way better person than me. <laughs> Good for you. And that that is not said in jest. I mean that wholeheartedly. Um, <laughs> so okay, so um, let's look at take a look at your work right now. And uh, let's maybe start. time to pare down some of the things on my website. Though. Yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. It's like. Yeah, you have got so much work. I mean, you are. Yeah, I think um, over the years, I've gotten to be so diverse in my work that it was like, I just wanted to show my audience everything that I could do without necessarily sharing the best um, of my work. So gradually, I'm, you know, every time I go back to my website, I'm like, Oh, I could take that painting down, you know, that one's been up there for a while or whatever. But um, yeah, probably could use a little overhaul pretty soon. So are you saying but, you put everything you paint on your website? No, I definitely do not. Oh, okay. um, in fact, I, I try to kind of take down a few every time I add a new one. Oh, okay. Just to sort of even things out. So but, there's a lot know, more than this then you've done a lot more than oh, this yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. Unbelievable. Hundreds more. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. You're very prolific. That's amazing. So let's Thank talk you. about this one. This is, is this one of your children? Yes, that is my son Everett. And that has been the big star of just this past year, actually. It is gorgeous. Uh, King, thank you. It's called King of the Wild Things. And if you've ever read Where the Wild Things Are to Your Children, it's based on that classic children's book. Yeah. Um, and so he's he's in the woods and he's got these animals kind of lurking behind him there and put him in that costume, which he was three years old at the time when I put him in it and he barely fit into that thing. He's a big kid, mm -hmm. but I was so glad that I got him in there just in time. <laughs> um, and he's just, yeah, he's kind of the epitome of that, that little child that follows their impulses, you know, and does what they want. And that's what kids do. And they're, they're definitely wild. They're these, you know, rudimentary versions of who they're going to be someday. 
Um, so just trying to capture that element of whimsicality and just being in the moment of being a child, but also like I, his expression was very, very important to me to capture. It was kind of this combination of um, vulnerability and innocence, but also just that audacity of being a three-year-old, you know, a three-nager. Oh, you totally like to nailed that. You totally nailed that. <laughs> if I had to describe it, it would have been the same way. I mean, he's just, he <laughs> looks innocent and mischievous at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> all, all of those things. Yeah. You know what I find interesting about this is, uh, and I haven't read the books, um, but it's you've got these menacing, this menacing wolf and this menacing bear and this menacing deer. <laughs> like, I find that kind of funny. Is that significant to the book or is it just another animal? They are, they are. Okay. They're kind of, the, they represent these wild urges that, that you have to keep under control. I mean, this little boy in his imagination, he goes off to this land where he becomes the king of the wild things. Yeah. And there are all these, you know, <laughs> um, reckless, rompous kind of creatures that um, he, he becomes the king of, but uh really you know he needs to come home and <laughs> come back to the safety of his family and his hot dinner back home yeah and so they represent those those animalistic urges in a sense but um they could also be like guardians for him you know in a way too so it, you could take it any number of directions yeah well it's beautiful i love the narrative quality to it and you know one thing that i noticed about your work that is really interesting to me is how much you paint your children. I mean, I'm assuming many of these are your own yes. children. Yes. Is this your That's child as well? That's my daughter, Cecilia. Mm -hmm. And do you sell yep. these paintings? Um, I do. I do. Um, sometimes it's harder to let go of them. Um, this one is actually headed to a show at Robert Lang Studios this fall. And then the one of my son that you just showed, that one has already sold. So yeah, wow. it can be tough, but oh, at the same be. time for me, it's that it's always about the experience of putting it all together, of working with them individually, working with them directly, taking all the reference photos or painting them from life and then creating a concept and making it come to life on canvas. To me, that's really where the joy is. Um, so I'm okay with departing with the finished piece because I got to be there for its full creation. Yeah. So <laughs> I've come to that terms with sense. it for sure. And I guess, and when there's you... a few that I'll never let go of. Oh, there are. Well, and I guess when you do it oh, yeah. so much, you probably make, probably makes it a little bit easier to not get attached because you have so many. Oh, this, I do. This one I is do. also absolutely gorgeous. Wasn't this one of the winners of the Portrait Society? Yeah, that one was a finalist, finalist in the Portrait Society. And it's tiny. It's only like eight inches by six inches, really tiny piece. But I got the biggest compliment from Kwong Ho when he saw that painting. And he said, everything fits. You know, there's not mm -hmm. a brushstroke wasted. And that really meant the world to me because I do fight that urge to just um, render and over-render when I paint. So when I can do a painting and make all the pieces fit together perfectly, that's just, it feels like a miracle to me. <laughs> hmm, not a brushstroke wasted. Leave it to Kwong Ho to sum up good painting <laughs> with a one phrase like that. He knows. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's sharp. Yeah, and I would agree with that description. It feels like 
it feels like you almost did it in your sleep. Like it was so easy. It was one of those that just flowed perfectly. And that really? one I did sell and I wish I hadn't. If I could take it back. Oh no, it was a finalist <laughs> and you sold it. It was sold before it was a finalist. Oh, it was. Thankfully she loaned it back to me, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame. Maybe, maybe she'll will it back to me. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's a beautiful one. And then you've done um, a few pet portraits, it looks like. How do you, do you enjoy doing that? I have. I do, yeah. They're, they're fun and whimsical. That's of my, my dog who is now, wow, she's ancient now. She's 12 years old, but that was when she was still kind of um, a, an adolescent and she got into my phthalo green. And <laughs> I think that painting's called The Incident. Oh, um, man. I still have the rug with all that phthalo green in it. And no, she really? She was green for a few days, but she was fine. She was not. It was the non-toxic stuff. So. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Is phthalo non-toxic? Apparently. Okay, She's good. still living. She's 12 years old. <laughs> She's still. <laughs> and she hasn't acquired any superpowers or anything? Maybe that's it. Maybe <laughs> it was, uh, maybe that's what helped her live so long. <laughs> Okay, and then what about this one? That's a painting of one of my best friends from college. That's her son. She's actually got five children, and I've gotten the privilege of painting each one of them, usually when they're around the age of two. And that's kind of what I, what I tell, tell clients when they want me to paint their children. I'll say, hey, I think one of the absolute best ages, if you had to pick, is between two and three years old because they still have all that baby fat. You can pose them with their bare feet, with their toys, but they're old enough to be able to work with you at yeah. the same time and just kind of um, be a little bit more accommodating. So that's my favorite age to paint. And um, probably the reason I've painted my kids so often is I'm just like, oh, well, I love every stage of a child. But, um, you know, for people who are investing a lot of money in commissioning a portrait, it's like, okay, you have to just that sort of choose and that's what i tell them yeah. usually <laughs> that's that's good advice the other thing about that age is they finally have a face that at least resembles their adult face i mean it's it's obviously still yes. a kid face but all babies sort of look yes. the same you know and yeah. then and then by the time yeah. they're two or they three they change so much yeah they start to look like this guy looks like a little man like i could totally picture him he does with a suit on you know but that they don't look like that at six <laughs> months old <laughs> yeah, I think that I think he's probably about 11 or 12 now already, which is crazy. Um, but he definitely looks the same still. So one of the things that I admire about you, I experienced personally, I had the honor of experiencing personally, and that is how fast and how well you draw. Because you painted me once at the Porch Society. And uh, I did. And you freaking <laughs> nailed it. In three and a half hours, you did a finished portrait. Or I mean, relatively finished. I mean, it's all relative, right? Finished. I think it was two and a half hours. Was it only actually, two and a half hours? Yeah. Yeah. Of, yeah. Of I remember we were kind of pressed for time, but yeah, that was so much fun. It was fun. And I cherish that <laughs> thing. It's awesome. Um, oh, but you, you nailed the likeness. So I want to look at some of your Alla Prima sketches. So is it safe to assume since it's Alla Prima? Oh, demos from life. Yes. So they are from yep, life. Yeah, those are all done from life. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to assume, because a lot of people draw from life and don't really consider likeness important. But after seeing the way you yeah. drew me and seeing you draw other people, you just have a gift for nailing it, nailing a likeness. Um, 
Is this something that you've you have sought after, or is it something that's innate to you? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, it takes a lot of practice to master drawing to a point where you capture the likeness. And Jeff, you're amazing at this yourself, but you know that there's there's moments in your drawing or painting where you lose it, and then you mm -hmm. get it back, and then you lose it again, and then you get it back. And sometimes it's just a matter of constantly searching um, and moving things around in micro shifts mm -hmm. to get that likeness. Um, ultimately, though, it comes down to the structure and having a really, really solid start and a solid light and shadow structure from the beginning. Right. So when I'm painting or drawing from life, I'm really looking at the light and shadow shapes first and how they relate to each other. And then the smaller details can kind of help seal that likeness. But um, I think a likeness is set from the very first brush strokes because you have to have that in your mind's eye already and kind right. of know, okay, this is, this is the way the model's face is turned, whether it's three quarter or profile or whatever it is. And just getting those um, incremental distances for the proportions correct, that's so important. Yeah. Um, but it's important to me because I care about the people that I paint <laughs> to a degree where I want them to see themselves in it. And, and you know, hopefully um, it's a great experience for them as well. So I have this, I can't help it, but I always have like this emotional connection with whoever I'm painting and, and just um, that that's important to me for some reason. So in a, in a way, I've had to sort of try to train myself out of that as I create more figurative works that are maybe a little bit more narrative or don't have to, don't necessarily have to have a good likeness um, because ultimately I want it to be a great painting and not just a painting of this specific person. So um, yeah, <laughs> hmm. I don't know. It's, it's kind of a, a struggle for me because I want it to look like them, but then it doesn't necessarily have to, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. So innately, you just have that innate desire. Yes. So why, why when you're doing a, a multi-figure narrative painting, or just a narrative painting in general, why not just continue with a likeness? How does changing it improve the painting? Um, well, sometimes, and this is this is going to be, I don't know, it's up for debate, but right. sometimes galleries do not like how the model looks. And oh. that sounds really bad. But if you're doing a painting for a gallery and it's something that they want to be able to sell to anybody, it can't be. I mean, it, sometimes it can, but that's usually actually it happened to you. Like a, a specific portrait. It has like uh, I painted a, a figure one time where she had a very, very bony back and it was it was a, a nude from behind and she was reclining and her shoulder blade was kind of like digging back to a point where it was this really sharp triangle shape. Mm. And the gallery came back to me and they were like, you know, we love this painting, but can you just soften that shoulder blade a little bit? And they're okay. like, I'm sure that's how it looked. But, you know, so things like that, maybe um, I've had to change a little bit just to accommodate them and to make it more sellable, which mm -hmm. feels like um, just feels a little dirty to me. But <laughs> 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 yeah. what a sellout. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I'm doing that right now um, on a painting I'm working on where I'm editing the anatomy to make it more beautiful, more interesting, because we all have little weird quirks about our bodies. There's no yeah. perfect body. Yeah. Right. Um, For sure. But what about the faces, though? Have you ever had a gallery tell you they don't like that face and have you change a face? Um, no, because usually what I manage to do is take that model and make it look like them, but make it look like the better looking version of them. Oh, that's a <laughs> gift that I don't have. <laughs> I'm way too honest. So, <laughs> um, so that comes from, yeah, a lot of experience with portrait commissions and having people yeah. come to me and be like, hey, can you maybe change this about me, make my jawline a little bit smoother or whatever it is. Um, so I've had to do that over the years and usually that works out okay. But um, mostly, I guess for me personally, I'm just trying to focus less on over rendering a, a portrait or a face and making it more painterly. And if that means that it's not going to look as much like the model, then I need to be okay with that because mm -hmm. I want it to be a great painting. Mm -hmm. So um I'm trying to get out of that tight realism a little bit and be okay with things being less perfect so that it looks more like a painterly painting. So that's where, where I'm working on, um, on that. Well, and, that's a good segue yeah, I mean, into this painting because that's <laughs> sure. how this one feels to me where, I mean, it might look like him, but again, you have a real, well, no stroke is wasted. I would say the same thing about this painting that Kwong. Yeah, that was um, another very quick demo painting. I think I did that for the Oil Painters of America convention a few years ago. And wow. we had a live model and he was fantastic. He was very experienced. That always helps because they sit real still. Um, and I purposely set up in a spot where that glare was on his glasses. Oh, I know. That's gold. That was <laughs> because so Because I smart. wanted to get wanted to pull it off and i was trying out this new color from michael harding i was trying out his uh cobalt teal and i was like okay where can i sneak this in so i just stuck it everywhere in the painting so you can see that along the edge of his forehead you can see it mixed in with the whites and the glare of the glasses you see it right in the hair yeah um and it just kind of added that coolness the contrast the warmth in his face so this painting to me was just a joyful experiment in brushwork, in boldness, in yes, getting the likeness, but just going for it. It was one of those days where I was like, I got this. I'm just going to go. Yeah, you had it. I don't, I'm glad I, don't I wasn't painting next to you that day. Jeez Louise, <laughs> nailed it. And this is, um, I love this eye too. I wish we could zoom in. Oh, well, maybe we can. Can we? Nope, can't. Nope. Um, I wish Sorry. we could zoom in, but <laughs> it looks like there's like four brushstrokes in there on that eye. I mean, it's yeah, probably just a few. It's incredible. Um, yeah, real economy. I think you can say work. a lot with a little. Yeah. Yeah, you did. Yeah, beautiful Thank work. You. Um, <laughs> and then you have a lot of nudes. Let me see. Let's go back to. Mm -hmm. uh, we exit out of here. Well, I'd love to talk about the first one in that gallery. If you can pull that one up this one here yeah that one. Ooh, that is beautiful yeah tell me that about one, this one is is really fun um it's in daniel sprick's studio is that daniel right there and that's dan right there yeah. and then on the you, left 
is his student and uh, kind of somebody he's been mentoring for a while. His name's Tanner. And so um, Tanner actually gave me the, the idea for the title, which was the student, the model and the mentor or something like that. I, I don't remember if that's what it was exactly, but um, it was really, really fun to capture that dynamic, the two of them painting together and then the model in the center. So yeah, and really, you got really the hardest lighting with it all shadow. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens when you walk in late. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I actually don't mind being the last one to set up in front of the model because sometimes I find that um, you get the most unlikely angle is sometimes the best angle. Yeah, I think you kind of lucked out on this one because I probably would have yeah. avoided this. And um, it turned out to be really beautiful lighting with that kind of rim lighting on her leg and on her forehead and hair. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, but, it was a lot of fun. But the likeness thing again. I mean, come on. I knew that was Daniel Sprit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like this That's tiny little choppy. It's the gesture. It just he. Well, he just gesture. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has a way about him, and you captured it. Um, just the <laughs> way he moves, the way he stands, and he's this thin, yeah. kind of long, sinewy kind of figure. Uh -huh. and you totally nailed that. And he always wears the baseball cap and the apron. So, I mean, it's yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's more than that. Yeah, you nailed it. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, and this one is, I mean, it's a thumbnail, but this is gorgeous as well. Is this um, also Thank at the you. studio? Yeah, that's another live model that we had. I haven't gotten to paint her in a while. She's moved on. You know, models are they're kind of transient. They come and go, unfortunately. Um, the good ones always move away. Yeah. But I love that she was just this real woman in front of us mm -hmm. and um, just getting to paint that beautiful skin, those beautiful curves. That was such a privilege to me. Um, and that's how I look at painting a live model. I, you know, I don't take it lightly. It's a real responsibility to capture someone who has um, become that vulnerable in front of you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I really take that into consideration when I'm painting from life whether it's a portrait or a nude but especially the nudes because um it is it's humanity in front of me and i just want to capture that the best of my ability and really do them justice and usually i feel like i don't but that's always the end goal i just want to capture that beauty and <laughs> right and show that yeah that's gorgeous i mean you've got you really have a beautiful sense of flesh here too because i'm assuming she's indian mm -hmm. yep. yeah and that indians have a certain flesh tone that's unique to them yeah. i think and you and there there's kind of these violets yeah. and purples and stuff yes. that you captured in there it's very subtle and beautiful yeah and it's tricky too because you know you want to capture their local skin tone but also there's you're restricted by whatever color the light is that's on them. And so mm -hmm. um, that was at Kwang Ho's old studio at the Art Students League in Denver. And we always had fluorescent lights. We had multiple light sources. It was confusing. What? It was just Why? downright confusing. <laughs> I don't know. That's just what we did. Really? So that's every week I would show up and be like, all right, I got to figure this out. Just got to figure this out. Yeah, let's look at that again. <laughs> so was that that I guess that didn't have very direct light. I lost it now. Um, oh, you just had it there. Yep. To the right a little bit. To the right. And up. Oh, right here. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's so not very we direct. We got two shadows. Her. So we got two shadows here. So uh -huh. there's at least two light sources. Yeah. 
Yep. So we would have the fluorescence overhead and then she would have maybe a warm spotlight that we we'd pose to try to get some more um, actual shadow shapes. But usually they were pretty diffused. So you can see that in the edges. See, that's just because Kwong can make a painting out of anything and he's just torturing the rest of us. That's his <laughs> yes, problem. Yes, he can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then yeah. it's our problem. <laughs> yeah, so he just wants to show off. Dang it. Um, <laughs> incredible. Um, all right. So one thing I wanted to mention, you had talked about capturing a likeness with shadows. And my, I'm going to encourage all my students to listen to what you said. Um, mm -hmm. Let me pull up another another portrait here. Well, let's pull up that guy because I think... That said it all right here again. Um, and uh, we spend a lot of time just working on posterizing the light and dark pattern. And, so good. Right, yeah. And um, I often tell them, I, I tell them something that I'd heard from an artist um, named Alvin Gittens, who died back in the 70s, who said that um, if you're walking down the street and you see someone a block away, you can tell who they are, but you can't see their eye color. You can't certainly can't see their eyelashes. You can't see yes. any details at all. All you see is a light and dark pattern, quite small at that. And so you can yeah. recognize them with that light, dark pattern. So I encourage them to just focus on that. But that's kind of, um, so I'm grateful that you said that, like how important that is, because I think uh, yeah. it's easy for yeah. beginners but to then... just want to go for the details. Right. But then what do you do when you've got a flat light source? So like this painting, he's mostly in the light, right? right. And um, and I actually love working with portraits where there's hardly any shadow. And yeah. I love doing that because the other thing that you can do to help define form is turn it with varying color temperatures. And that is the next level, right? That you take, you go, you master value, which we never actually master value, but you try to master value. And then the next step beyond that is to turn form with color temperature. And so um, like his forehead, for example, you've got all these minute plane changes going on in there, mm -hmm. but it's all pretty much under this flat light. And you've got that highlight and then some slightly darker values around it. Um, but you know, you're absolutely right. You can recognize somebody from a mile away just by their, their light and shadow, um, but also the shape of their head or the shape of their face. And mm -hmm. so he's got a really recognizably large, broad forehead that might help define his likeness a little bit or the, the length of his nose. He's got a fairly short nose, so that's kind of important as well. So I look for those things also. And then really honing in on the light and shadow, you know, what little I have there. Um, I actually used the background in this painting to really chisel in the shapes that I was seeing. And um, especially in the forehead or the ear, for example, mm -hmm. those were my opportunities for really sharp edges, kind of draw you in. And then everything else could kind of get soft and um, painterly um, or lost, <laughs> lost edges. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I I definitely agree with you. Light and shadow helps define the form and the likeness, but um, plane changes with color temperature can as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. So let's look at your some of your flower work. Um, we've got a lot Virtuitous of Virtuitous flower painting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've got a lot of these in our yard right now. Beautiful. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> have you... What is it about flower painting 
that you enjoy? Because I've never done um, it, I, and I find it beautiful, but I've never, ever painted it. I don't think I've ever painted a flower even in another painting. Oh, really? No, wow. I'm trying to think if I've ever painted um, a flower. So I just, I always wonder what, it, what, what draws people in, not because I don't appreciate it, because I think it's gorgeous, but I'm curious what draws you in, into that subject. Uh, it's a number of things. Um, flower painting really has been teaching me about how to design and arrange shapes in a way that you can't with people because people are just so much more straightforward. Mm -hmm. Um, but flowers, there's an infinite possibility for design, right? And uh, it, it's a love hate thing because I will just paint something and then just get super frustrated with where it is going and maybe hating my design at first, but oh, guess what? You can just turn the vase and maybe get a different perspective there or paint the same flower from three different angles and you have a full bouquet. Um, so flowers for me create the opportunity for a lot more imagination and just helping me use my creative resources a little bit more rather than just painting what I'm seeing. Okay. So they forced me to, to practice design in a lot more meaningful and intentional way. And I love that they give me the opportunity to pull out my paints straight out of the tube and just slash them on there, like bright yellow, bright cadmium, bright red. Um, I don't get to do that as often with portraits and figures. Right. So uh, it's, it's also an opportunity to manage that bright chroma but also still try to master the values. So it's extremely challenging to me personally. Yeah, it looks Much more than painting people. Um, oh, and in this seriously? one even, I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh, you know, you know, I could have done a better job of maybe toning down some of those yellows um, and, and still capturing that brightness without it being quite that loud. But it's, you know, I'm learning from every single one of these. So, yeah. One of the things I like about this painting and I guess you kind of address this is how you designed these, the leaves down here there. Mm -hmm. And I love the way you kind of chiseled their shapes by drawing the negative yeah. space around them. It's yeah, that is, is a lot of fun to try to figure out. It's a lot of problem solving and I will scrape off the leaves, start over, add more. I'll let it dry. I'll work back into it. I almost never paint a floral just the way I see it in oh. real life because it's never going to be a perfect design um, or exactly how you want it. So I'm usually just working with the materials in front of me and putting them all together in the painting. So how do you manage? Okay. We talked about value pattern and how value pattern shows form, right? How do you manage mm -hmm. keeping true to the form? And whilst while editing, because every time you move a leaf, it's going to cast a different shadow on a different leaf. And I mean, it would be really right. difficult to actually right. predict what that shadow might look like. And so how do you That's manage really true. Um, I keep my light source really, really consistent. So as long as I know where the light is coming from, I can usually have a pretty good idea of how things are going to fall into place, even if there's a variation in shape and form. Mm -hmm. Um. And once in a while, I'll take a number of reference photos of my original composition to just refer back to if I have to change it later. I'll okay. be like, oh, yeah, that's how that looked. So I can um, just kind of remember that and then move forward knowing that I still have that reference at my disposal. 
but I almost never work from the references unless I absolutely have to. Um, with flowers, I really prefer to work from life almost entirely just because the, the colors are so different in a photo. They're just not, I don't know, they just don't do it for me. <laughs> I, can't, I can't get the same excitement out of a photo of flowers that I can from working from life. There's also kind of this adrenaline rush. You're like, okay, I got maximum two days before these fade. I got to get this in. Do you even have so, that long before they change shape? Uh, depending on the flower. Yeah, you might just have a couple of hours. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking uh, to Carlo Russo about this on, a, on the podcast, and he was saying that he could go away to lunch and then he'll come back and a tulip closed on him. Well, that's and why I don't paint tulips. Yeah. Tulips are terrible. He paints tulips a lot. <laughs> They're beautiful. So you've experienced that tulips are a pain in the rear, huh? Yes, they are. I didn't they know that. They just tip over, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So let's look at some of your, oh, this one's gorgeous. I like this. Oh, thank you. That's beautiful. So obviously yeah, this is more of a experiment. fall painting. So you broke your pattern. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I remember painting that one with my son. He was a couple months old at the time. He was sitting on my lap for half that painting. No um, kidding. Yeah, that's my biggest memory of, of that painting, actually. Not even the painting itself, but just holding him while I was doing it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was that was kind of a fun piece because I don't usually do a vertical composition for these kinds of still lives. I, I prefer a really long kind of stretched out horizontal format. And so I was challenged to um, make it interesting from top to bottom, but with the main focal point all being at the bottom third of the painting. Um, so I pulled those leaves in from my backyard and put those in there and tried to make it kind of this musical rhythm, almost like a, like a piece of music, uh, staff paper. And you see the notes kind of stretched out on the, on the music. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's what I, I was so, envisioning yeah. this together. Well, you definitely pulled that off because I keep coming back to here and then bouncing up and bouncing over and bouncing over and then back to here. Right. So yeah, I mean, you've definitely got control of my eyes. Nice work on that one. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, still life to me is a great way to, um, I like to listen to classical music when I'm painting still life because I, I find a really strong correlation between design in florals and just the the classical form um, of the music of Beethoven or Mozart or that kind of thing. And I know that um, Richard Schmid used to do that all the time with his paintings also. And there's really some, something to be said for that because you, um, I don't know if you have any background in music, but mm -mm. as a classical musician, I'm just constantly finding connections between those two things. And with artists, we really don't have as strong of a vocabulary to describe what we do as musicians do. They've got entire, the whole Italian language <laughs> hmm. to describe how to convey this music. And we're just kind of like, uh, make it brighter, make it darker. I don't know, change that value or change that hue, but we're, we're still fairly restricted in how we describe what we do. So I like to think in musical terms to help me understand my painting a little bit better. Hmm. If that makes sense. I think, yeah, it does. You know, and one thing that I find so interesting and kind of strange 
is how different music inspires different types of painting. Because I've had that same experience. If I'm doing a biblical painting, I can't be listening to like jazz or something. I mm -hmm. <laughs> I always got to go to <laughs> classical, or I can't get into I can't get into the rhythm of the painting. I can't. Yeah. And I don't yeah, know that's if really that's true. a nature or nurture thing, or if if that's because we've been forced to clump those two things together because we understand that there's a they share a similar history or because there is actually a artistic relationship innate to those two style or to those two different mediums i've it often could wondered be. That. And, um i know um a couple of years ago stephanie thompson who you just interviewed and then michelle dunaway had a conversation about that on one of their instagram Mm -hmm. live things and i would love to dig that up again because they talked about that correlation and it was such an interesting conversation i was like okay i would really love to explore that topic a little bit more because i think you're right uh it could be nurture or it could just be that some things are inherently a certain way yeah and that's just how we have to go about it i don't know yeah well, I do know it's worth exploring. It is. It's a really interesting topic. I do believe there is something about the tempo that's independent of the music style. Um, yes. That definitely relates to subject matter in painting. A painting that is totally more dynamic, agree. you want to create more energy, you want to be listening to something with a more dynamic, higher tempo, more energetic music. At least that's my experience. Right. Um, right. Anyway. But not necessarily painting everything um at the speed of sound i mean you, you no, kind of want to no. <laughs> you want it to look like you painted it quickly but not necessarily do right. it that way right that's true um so this is an unusual <laughs> one for you it's just sort yes. of like in the studio <laughs> painting tell me about this one what Pretty motivated much. this work you know when i paint things in my studio or a lot of the time when i do a self-portrait um i'm usually just out of ideas at the okay. time and so i paint what's in front of me to try to get that creative juice flowing again so this was one of those where i was like okay i have all these things here why don't i just paint this hmm. and i don't know if it's a great design or not i think at the time that wasn't really my priority but i had so much fun painting all those different things and then arranging of course the little wooden mannequin to give it a certain yeah. um whimsical feel and yeah, yeah, it was mostly just for fun. This was one of those that I did entirely for me. And it ended up selling. I think collectors can tell when you're having fun on a painting because it translates. Yeah. Um, so that's actually something I tell my students pretty frequently. I'll be like, look, if, if you were bored painting the background, for example, or painting some part of this painting, your viewer is going to be able to tell whether they're an artist or oh, not. Oh, totally. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've heard many artists and I totally agree with this say that it's, um, and if the client, if they have a commission and a client just stays out of the way, then they do good work. But if the client gets involved, they do terrible work. And it's because of what you're talking about. The less the artist is interested yeah. in what they're doing, the worse the painting is going to be. And there's no, I don't think there's a way around that. Right. At least I haven't been able to figure one out. If I lose interest, I'm useless. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I've totally restarted paintings for clients before just because I hated what I was doing. And I would just tell them outright. I was like, look, this isn't working. I want to try this instead. 
Um, I promise you it will be a hundred times better. And once I tell them that they're like, okay, yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Then that's I'm like, good. Oh, why didn't I just go with that idea in the first place? <laughs> you got to be brave. I know. Tell right. You're the expert. <laughs> Take control. So <laughs> this one. Okay. So tell me, were you listening to Michael Jackson's beat it? <laughs> no. <laughs> because your 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 uh, little mannequin here is doing the moonwalk and i don't know if that was intentional oh, yeah um i don't know either <laughs> i it was quite a few years ago so i don't remember what hmm. i was listening to but i do remember how i felt when i was painting it and that was just kind of just sheer delight at all the reflected things in the metal jar and then you know the paint tubes and all that stuff so it was really fun yeah that's cool all right let's so let's look at some of your landscapes um is there any well okay i was going to ask you but no i'm going to take control here this is beautiful <laughs> <laughs> thanks so um, that's from lake louise in canada or not lake louise uh lake uh oh, moraine lake okay is, right is this plain air yeah yes yes and was this so one of your by nine. one of your trips on that's on your own this was actually on a baby moon with my husband to Banff. And we were there for our 10 year anniversary and I was 34 weeks pregnant with my son at the time. You, you went on vacation um, so, at 34 weeks. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's bold. I did some hiking too. That was wow. Pretty fun. Um, yeah. So I did a little bit of painting. I didn't have a ton of energy at the time, but um, I, I remember my husband decided to go hike a little bit around this lake and the water there is incredible. It's this bright turquoise. It looks fake. It looks like nuclear or something, but that's just the way it looks at these lakes. And so they're very famous. And then the mountains, of course, are, are really rugged looking and um, the snow lasts most of the summer. Hmm. So I just set up at this lake and um, because I was so close to all the mountains, um, I had to just kind of hone in on one of the peaks because I'm kind of a sight size painter when I do landscape. I can't really help it. I just paint relative to what size I'm seeing. Um, so you don't mean literally so, sight size as in a plumb line and the measuring? No, not literally with the plumb line, but I, I have to see things the way, or I have to paint things kind of the size I see them. Yeah. And I'll do this either, even when I'm painting from a live model, where if I, if I want to fit the whole figure on an eight by 10, I have to be really far away. Yeah. Otherwise I just can't see it that way. Um, can't fit it in. I don't think that's unusual. So that's kind of what I was thinking when I set up this landscape and uh, it was a real joy to paint that one. I'd love to do a larger version of it. I think that would be really fun. There were canoes kind of going across the lake at the time and mm. <laughs> lots of tourists. So I'm kind of curious about, this is maybe a ridiculous tangent, but I wonder why the water is turquoise. Do you think it's the reflection of the sky combined with the trees? that makes it sort of turquoise? That is something I should have probably looked up. Um, I, I remember reading about it when we were out there and I think it had to do with just what was actually in the water and the pH Algae of it or something? But hmm. Interesting. Well, it's gorgeous. And you know what I love about it is you've really captured the jagged quality of these rocks. It just, it's like you did oh, a thanks. portrait of the rock instead of just this generic yeah. mountain. Right, right. It's definitely a portrait. Um, and I think mountains take some practice painting because they have this quality to them that if you're not careful with your brushwork to be just a little bit 
um, just load a little bit more paint on each time, they can look too smooth and too airbrushed almost. Mm -hmm. So you want to have enough paint to really get that feeling. And of course, values are so important too, especially when you're painting in direct sunlight like that. So that's always tricky, kind of getting the value of the snow in the shadow versus the snow in the light and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's surpri it's surprisingly light in the value right. of the shadow snow. Right. Yeah. Lots of trial and error. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very convincing. Um, and then Thanks. let's see. And then, oh, this is close to home here in Utah. Yeah. Yeah, that was on one of my trips. That was last November. That was such a great trip. Um, and I love that hike. Have you ever done that? I have. Yep. Out to uh, Delicate Arch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a strenuous hike. It's like three and a half miles or something. Um, but it's straight up this this rock that you climb up to get there. And the payoff, of course, was getting to do the painting at the top. And it was, it was just so beautiful. I, uh, I'd only seen it in calendars before, mm -hmm. or, you know, Utah license plates. Yeah, it's otherworldly. <laughs> It is. It's bizarre. Utah so, is bizarre. Hopefully the painting captured my kind of um, loud, <laughs> odd expression over this whole thing. I was just like, I can't believe this is real. This looks fake. Uh-huh. No, you know, and it's and part of it is just how it is. But the juxtaposition mm -hmm. with this orange of the of the arch mm -hmm. and the blue of the sky is just so beautiful. And I realize, yeah, the sky is blue and the arch is orange, but still, I mean you, you <laughs> It, you pulled it off really well. I mean, it's oh, it thanks. seems very convincing. Very the only beautiful. thing I think it's missing is a sense of real scale, because if you were to put a person in there under the arch, they would be like this tiny little brushstroke because it's so big. Yeah, um, that's interesting. And that didn't occur to me probably because I know the place, but you, maybe you're right. If I didn't know the place, I wonder if I would know the scale of it. I don't know. Right, right. Huh. Hard to capture in a nine by twelve, that's for sure. Yeah. And then you well, you do have these bushes down here, but they could also be grass or something. Right. And I think those were actually the tops of trees oh, down see, in the valley. There below. You go. So Yeah. You know, wow. you'd never know that unless you'd been there. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even catch that. That's a good eye. Hmm. And were you there by yourself as well for that one? I was. Jeez. Yeah. That's crazy. I can't even, I would never do that. Oh my gosh. This one is awesome. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. That was in Joshua tree national park. It was another, um, hike to get to that spot, but it's called 49 palms oasis. And it's literally this oasis of palm trees in the middle of the desert in a Valley. You've got the Valley walls on either side and then the mountains off in the distance. And Oh my gosh, that was such a fun painting yeah. to do because I was the only one there and I could hear all the birds, caw there were crows cawing in the distance and um, it just, it, it was so isolated and yet those palm trees gave it this feeling of security almost like, oh, I'm safe. <laughs> yeah. And uh, again, by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and those crows are probably Honestly, vultures, you know, probably circling to wait for you to get dehydrated yeah, and die. Yeah, right, waiting for me yeah. to die. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I've painted in a lot of public places before, and I don't mind it. I don't mind when people come up to me and talk to me, but 
really, I prefer to just be by myself when I'm yeah. doing these kinds of paintings because I just want to give it a hundred percent of my attention. And I find just being surrounded by people or being passed by people on a trail or whatever is really distracting. Do you, so, maybe this is too personal and for the podcast even, but I, if it is, I'll take it out. But do you carry protection of any kind when you're out by yourself? I have pepper spray. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's something good. I'm glad. Um, Cause if my wife is out there, but, I'd, I'd may, I'd want her to have some protection. <laughs> Well, you know, that's why I work out a lot. Yeah, um, you got some guns there. I, I guarantee that if somebody came up to me, I'd be able to outrun them. So, <laughs> yeah. But you'd lose it. all your painting supplies. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's all right. That's okay. Better to keep your life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when the places I go, like these national parks, really, uh, the biggest risk would be de dehydration, um, maybe rattlesnakes, maybe... Um, Maybe I sit on a cactus or something, but there's really not that many risks out there. Okay, um, good. So you just have to be smart about it. Yeah. Bring a ton of water, bring a lot of snacks, plan ahead. Um, I, I always have my cell phone, although eventually I'd like to get one of those, um, I forget what they're called, the phone that you can take with you off the grid. Um, oh, I'm not aware of that. Satellite phone. Yeah, oh, right. satellite phone. So eventually I'll probably get one of those. That would be the smart thing to do, but... I'm, yeah. I'm just not worried about it. I don't live in that state of what if. I'm mostly excited about the opportunity to be immersed in nature and um, maybe bring a painting back from it. Maybe it's because you were born and raised in Texas and not New York where I was born. I was actually <laughs> born and raised in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. Similar, you know, it's similar because I grew up in the country. Yeah. And uh, I did live in Texas for quite a few years. And yeah, you kind of get used to, to um, being out there and being okay with it yeah and not being surrounded by people all the time yeah well it's a back to the painting i'm glad you went out there so you can make beautiful work i just hope you stay safe um, <laughs> but yeah this is gorgeous and the the again the this economy of brush strokes is what is so amazing because I look at the tops of these palms and I'm trying to imagine how I would have handled this. And I don't think, mm. I don't know that I would have come up with such an elegant solution. Oh, thanks. Um, it's just, and the, you know, that's what I love about plein air. You have to be really economical with your brush strokes because you get a window, unless you're painting under cloud cover, you get a window of maybe an hour and a half before the light changes so drastically. And I did have clouds moving in while I was painting this. So the window of time that I had for that one was even smaller than what it would have been. So yeah, it's very, very quick problem solving hmm. the whole way through. So usually I get done and I'm exhausted afterwards because mentally I've just used up everything. So about how much time do you think you put into a plein air painting like this? I think that one was about an hour, an hour and a half maybe. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's fast. Eight by 10 is not terribly small for an hour and a half either. Man, that's great. Well, we are running out of time. I know you've got a lot to do. So let me ask you um, <laughs> one final question. Um, if there's a piece of advice that you could give an aspiring artist that you wish you had, what would that be? Oh, boy, that I wish I or had. Or maybe something you did have that you valued 
It doesn't have to be something you Yeah, I mean, I would say I was so lucky. I had so many amazing opportunities, but um, I would say don't worry about getting into a gallery right away or, you know, selling paintings right away. Just focus on becoming a better painter. And the more you focus on that, the more recognition you'll get. Just gradually, it's going to happen. Um, I think early on, I was so worried about making money at it and selling my work and getting into galleries and, and getting some kind of recognition that I stressed over it so much. And I was kind of a sellout in a lot of ways. There were paintings that I did that I look at and I'm like, oh, I only painted that so that it would sell. And I think people can tell, they can tell that you're not really putting your heart and soul into it. So um, all that to say, my biggest advice is just follow your passion, paint what you're passionate about and be uncompromising in that. And you're going to find your following. You're going to find your collectors. They're going to come to you. So that's my advice. That's great advice. Well, Anna, thanks a lot for doing the podcast. It was a huge honor to talk to you and a, and a huge pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jeff. This is great. Take, <laughs> Look forward to listening to all the others. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.